Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey. Welcome to Beyond the Scenes. This is the podcast that goes deeper into segments and topics that aired originally on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. This, this, this is what this podcast is like. All right. So, like, you, you ever had a chicken pot pie? And I'm not talking about a frozen pot pie. I'm talking about one of them homemade, straight out the oven pot pies. One of them pot pies made from somebody in a good marriage. Them, them the, the best tasting pot pies. And so, you have a pot pie and it's good, but you never know whether or not there's crust on the bottom of the pot pie dish, right? That's what this podcast is. It's surprise, it's crust on the bottom too because everybody likes more crust. And that's what this podcast is. It's the more crust of the Daily Show universe. I'm Roy Wood Jr. And in honor of Women's History Month, we're taking a look at the powerful and influential roles that the first ladies have played throughout history. Let's roll the clip. The first lady. It's not a job that's actually in the Constitution, but that's just because in 1787, women hadn't been invented yet. And even though First Lady is not an official role, they've been important figures in the country from the very beginning. Maybe the most fascinating thing about First Ladies is that even though no one votes for them, and they kind of make up the job as they go, just by virtue of being married to the president, they can end up having a lot more power than many elected officials. The first lady is the most powerful woman in the country because she has the ear, first thing in the morning and last thing at night, of the f most powerful man in the country. Going back to the very first first lady, Martha Washington, and the second one, Abigail Adams, both of them were politically involved. They were involved in cabinet decisions. They were involved in campaigning. These women were political partners. Nancy Reagan was pulling a lot of the strings, calling many of the shots from President Ronald Reagan's first campaign for the White House back in 1980 to his Cold War ending triumph in 1987. Hillary Clinton became more involved, obviously, in policymaking than any first lady before her. She had an office in the West Wing. Bill Clinton even ran on the slogan, buy one, get one free. In 1919, Edith Wilson was unofficially running the country after her husband Woodrow suffered a stroke. Today, I'm joined by Daily Show producer and very sad Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan because Brady retired, Jeff Gusso. Jeff, welcome to the show. How you been, bro? I'm good, man. How you doing, Roy? 
Okay. I mean, look, it's it's Brady's been going about a month, man. It's okay, man. You yeah. gotta get past it. You know, I'm sure the Bucks will suck again next year. So <laughs> we're also joined by CNN contributor and New York Times best-selling author of the book First Women: The Grace and Power of America's Modern First Ladies and the Resident. Kate Anderson Brower. Thank you for joining us and going beyond the scenes with us today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. The, the elegance. You hear that, Jeff? You I hear do. the wonderful <laughs> elegance. This is going to be a good-ass conversation. So, Jeff, before I get to you, ladies first. Kate, help us, for the people who don't know, myself included, uh, help us understand the role of the first lady. You know, it's, it's, it's unpaid. First and foremost, we want to talk about some pay inequity. Uh, it's an unelected role. There, there really doesn't seem to be a rule book on what you can and can't or should and shouldn't do. But yet everybody has an opinion on what a first lady should or shouldn't be doing. So what are some of the expectations of the role? Well, it's a very archaic, old-fashioned title, right? You know, Jackie Kennedy said that she never wanted to be called First Lady. It sounded like a saddle horse. She said it was like a demeaning name. Um, it's very arcane because people don't understand it. And even years of studying it myself, I found it to be completely dependent on the person who has the position. Um, one, one person wrote to Betty Ford, who was first lady in the 70s, and said, you're constitutionally required to be perfect. And I think that kind of sums it up. They are supposed to be ideal wives and mothers, the symbol of what it is to be an American woman juggling everything. And each of them fails in their own way. And I think they they feel as though um, after a little bit of time in the position that they just have to make it their own and do what they want with it. Because as Rosalind Carter said, no matter what, you're going to be criticized. And, you know, there's a lot of sexism, obviously, and um, in the world still. And I think that there is a sense that each woman um, is held up to these very unfair expectations. And so they have to make the role their own. And there's nothing in the Constitution that describes what they have to do. So they can do as little, like Melania Trump, for instance, or as much like Eleanor Roosevelt or Hillary Clinton or Michelle Obama, these women that really took the role incredibly seriously. So it just depends on each woman. Yeah, because, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, she it was the school lunch initiative, you know, healthier nutrition, you know, the Let's Move program. You know, you look at everything that Betty Ford was doing with regards to, you know, just being vocal about women's issues. We don't have to talk about Nancy Reagan and just say, no, we know the history of that. How do some of the expectations of the first lady play into some of the gender norms and gender roles that I believe a lot of women are trying to break out of or at least trying to change what the base level expectations are of a first day because you know they're responsible for a lot of the domestic duties in the white not literally cleaning and cooking but organizing the social events and oh you gotta decorate the tree and we have to make sure everything is set for dinner like how much of those expectations are part of the role? I mean, one of the funniest things that happened during the Trump administration was when Melania, you know, was caught talking to a friend um, on the phone and saying something about how she just didn't want to deal with the stupid Christmas decorations. And I think everyone was like aghast at that because that's what the job is. And it, it just looked bad, too. They say I'm, I'm complicit. I'm the same like him. I support him. I don't no. say enough. I don't do enough. No. It's, where, it's, where I am. 
I put the, I'm working like a asthma, asthma I know. Christmas stuff that, you know, who gives a f- about Christmas stuff and decoration, but I need to do it, right? But I mean, look at Michelle Obama. She was making, you know, almost $300,000 at the University of Chicago Medical Center in their communications office. She went to Harvard, Princeton. She's incredibly well-educated. And yet her role was in many ways to just take care of the daughters. And there's nothing wrong with that. The mother-in-chief role that Michelle Obama took up was really powerful, especially for, you know, a black woman. I thought that that was really important for her to make this point that she was going to focus on her daughters. And there was nothing wrong with that. I think that you have to be able to just accept women doing as much or as little as they want. Then you see Hillary Clinton, who had an office in the West Wing, and she always regretted having that office because she realized that she overstepped, that the American people were not ready for it. And and I think that's unfortunate, right, that we haven't moved beyond that. And I think it's going to take a first gentleman, if that's what we call him, to like be okay with a woman doing as much or as little as she as she wants. I mean, if Bill Clinton were first gentleman, I think that no one would be expecting him to be, you know, baking cookies. Arranging the Christmas decoration, and yeah. redesigning the White House lawn. That's why, Jeff, that's why I was like, in a weird way during the last election, I was kind of pulling for Cory Booker just because I wanted the chaos of an unmarried man in the White House. Like, who's going to do what? If like, Granted, he's in a relationship with Rosario Dawson at the right. time. But, you know, are you still a first lady if your first <laughs> girlfriend? Like, I wanted chaos, dude. What was, like, the main inspiration for putting this piece together? Um, and just talk to us a little bit about the ideation of that uh, at The Daily Show. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was about November 2020. The election, I think, had just happened. And we were sort of, like, looking at, like, all the changes that were about to happen with Joe Biden and Dr. Jill Biden coming in. Uh, in January. And I think we were trying to like, you know, we just wanted to focus on like, what is this role? What is this handoff between Melania Trump to Jill Biden? And, you know, what is the history? What are the expectations? Four years of Donald Trump and Melania Trump had been so chaotic. And like, was what Melania Trump did normal? Was it not normal? What is expected of Jill Biden? So we wanted to honor these ladies. But we also wanted to like get the crux of like, you know, how the job can be good and how the job can be bad, you know, give it, you know, give people a full sense of it, you know, which is difficult in 10 minutes. But, you know, that was the big idea of what we were trying to get to. It's interesting because, you know, it's a role where, you know, traditionally they all have to champion some sort of social cause, you know, and, you know, it, and that's been the tradition of traditionally. You have to have something that you really give a lot of extra give a damn about. And you have to roll out a plan about that to the American people over the next four years. And hopefully with no scandals messing it up in the meantime. But I feel like the role has evolved over the years. What, what are some of the ways that first ladies, um, just in the research that you've seen, Jeff, what are some of the ways that the first ladies have kind of made this role their own? And I would love to hear from you as well uh, on that, Kate. When we were developing the piece chronologically, when we hit like Eleanor Roosevelt, like that was a big one that like there was so much to unpack. And we felt like that was really like where it changed, where it was like more front, where you could be visibly like, uh, you know, pushing for these causes and, you know, advocating on beliefs. Each one made it their own. And so like the connecting line through them all was like they each had their cause like that they would believe in. They were supporting their their husbands and the president's. But they were also like advocating for like women's issues and social causes that like 
would help further you know, generations. From the earliest days, America's first ladies were referred to as Lady Presidentress or Republican Queen. The term first lady didn't come into use really until Dolly Madison's time. The fourth first lady pioneered the practice of championing social causes. She helped orphan children and supported women's rights. And it's said that at Mrs. Madison's funeral, President Zachary Taylor eulogized her as the country's first lady, the first time that title was ever used. I was just thinking about what you were saying, Roy, earlier about if Cory Booker had been elected. And I think his mother or his sister or a niece or someone would have stepped in to take over the role because there's just no way that they would let that go. Like somebody needs to fill in. We saw Thomas Jefferson's daughter. We need a daughter. mama. We need a yeah. woman. Get a woman in here. Yes, you need a woman. And I, I still don't know why. But we feel the need to have this position. And like James Buchanan was a, was a bachelor. And his niece, Harriet Lane, you know, took over um, this wow. going back in the 19th century. But like the idea that we would elect a, an unmarried person as president, I think is such an interesting question because we attach so much like, you know, meaning to being married and having a family and like how that would make you responsible. And I, I just, I feel like we haven't moved far enough away from those really old fashioned ideas. You know, the first lady is arguably one of the most important advisors to the president. I don't believe that it was a coincidence that, you know, you know, Reagan ran a big deal on having a war on drugs and then Nancy had just say no. How much of a role or how much influence does the first lady have? Like, in what ways have first ladies impacted policy in this country? I mean, a very recent example is Michelle Obama with her Let's Move campaign that you mentioned earlier about, you know, having healthy lunches and ketchup doesn't count as a vegetable in school lunches and all of that. Ooh, I mean, she was really yes. trying to continue make it like a very healthy um, you know, environment for kids who sometimes, you know, uh, hot lunch is like their only meal of the day for some kids in this country, which is just like terrible. And so she really wanted to make sure they had nutritious food. And that dovetailed with the Let's Move campaign, which was about exercise and with her husband's uh, child care nutrition bill that they were trying to get through Congress. And so she would make calls to, to senators and uh, members of Congress trying to push that bill through. And that's a real example of a first lady getting involved in policy. Hillary Clinton wanted Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court and let her husband know that she was the right pick. So there are actual real ways that they're getting involved. And, and they call it pillow talk, which I still think is kind of silly. But the idea that at night, this is the last person there, the president's. <laughs> presumably yeah. going to be seeing. So they can influence policy. But like you mentioned, Betty Ford, and I think a lot of people know about what she did um, to, to talk about drug and alcohol addiction. But that happened after she was in office like that. At the, the Betty Ford Center was years later. And so I think they have this tremendous power for the rest of their lives if they choose to use it. So we all know that Nancy Reagan was one of the people that got you know, her husband to fire Donald Reagan, who was then his chief of staff. And then this one doesn't necessarily compare the same because it was 100 years ago. But we also know that, you know, I think it was it. Um, was it Woodrow Wilson that had yeah. the stroke? Mm hmm. 
Yeah. And, and, and Edith. Edith. And Edith was running the country after her husband, like, not in an official capacity, but unofficially. She would, you know, Woodrow would whisper in her ear, this is what you need to tell him to do. And then she would go password to the vice president. Yeah. Does that support system make the president stronger? Or is it, like, like where's the line of, hey, here's what you should do versus, hey, let me do my job? I mean, that's such a good question. When you bring up Edith and Nancy, those are two first ladies. The reasons why they were so powerful is they decided who could see their husbands, right? Like Nancy Reagan decided who would be chief of staff. She decided even when they were putting the cabinet together, who should be in the cabinet. And then Edith Wilson was keeping people away from her husband when he was sick. So it's the idea of who's controlling the people who can get into the Oval Office or have the president's ear. So I think that um, that's where the power lies in in the position of first lady is, is being that person who can control people who have access to their husband. And I think a lot of people would say first ladies shouldn't have any control, right? Because they're not elected. I would argue that most first ladies that have kind of been doing the pillow talk has been for the better of the country, not necessarily for the detriment. We don't know if Melania ever slept in the same bed with Trump after maybe the first year. But in terms of understanding just how influential this role is, why do women have to live in the shadows and be unpaid in that regard? If I, if you have a stroke and I'm the middleman between you and the chief of staff when the bombs again, this is back in the 1900s. Prohibition, World War One was around the corner. Shouldn't I get a little bit of money for being a first lady? <laughs> it is ridiculous, and that's what um, Dr. Biden is trying to do. I think by having a job, by being paid for that job, she's teaching, of course, and she had taught her entire life. The only time she took a break was during the campaign, and I think that it's important that women be able to continue their jobs. And you know, Laura Bush, it's it's not a partisan thing either. Laura Bush said the same thing. She said, first ladies should be, you know, given the opportunity to pursue whatever career they had. I mean, you cannot expect Hillary Clinton to just sit idly by. And I think, uh, I think that being paid for being first lady is different than being paid for continuing your job as a teacher, which is outside, you know, the role. I think that's easier to convince people it's it's okay especially like as much work like you know there's still expectations of like stuff doing at the white house but like you know jill biden's been traveling all over you know visiting you know uh, tornado victims and things like that so like there's still just a lot of work as well that they are doing and still expected to do as well and like to not get paid for that but also have an office that like up with a staff that reports to them like why is the boss not paid <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> Well, you're paying the prestige of the book deal after you leave office. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> Jeff, what what didn't make it into the piece? Because that's the thing I'm always curious about. Just, all right, what what argument did y'all have when this piece was 13 minutes and you knew you had to chop it down to 10? Yeah, I mean, you know, every woman that's been a first lady has like, a, you know, there's documentaries about them. There's books about them. Like there's hundreds of, of sources on them and stories to tell. And like, it's very difficult to like narrow it down. And like right off the top, Dolly Madison was where we sort of started this piece. And like, you know, one of the stories that was interesting, but we just didn't have time for was like her saving like all these, you know, government documents and the Washington portrait when the British were storming the White House. And it was just like a fascinating story, but like we just didn't have the time to like explain that story. Eleanor Roosevelt, we, we spent one entire role on. And there was like two stories that like 
I thought were really interesting, but we just didn't have room for. One was that, like, you know, she was very um, a big advocate for the anti-lynching legislation, um, and the KKK put, like, a bounty on her. And then she also would hold women-only press conferences. A lot of newspapers that only had men reporters would have to either hire women reporters or, you know, get women to report on these stories. And so, like, it saved nice. women's jobs and, like, was a real force for, like, having women enter into journalism. And so, you know, you're condensing all this history into, like, you know, it's a 13-minute piece. And, like, the sound bites that we use are, like, a minute each, roughly. So, you know, trying to tell Eleanor Roosevelt's entire story in a minute is impossible. After the break, I want to get into, now that we know the role and the expectations of the First Lady, the criticism and the haters who love to talk that shit, Kate. I want you to break down all the shit talking and hating and unrealistic expectations that First Ladies go through. It's Women's History Month. We are going beyond the scenes on the history of the First Lady and also first dude we'll talk about him a little later the first gentleman gentle i think he should be dude first dude no y'all disagree okay that's fine <laughs> we'll go beyond the scenes when we come back hi i'm cindy crawford and i'm the founder of meaningful beauty well i don't know about you but like i never liked being told oh wow you look so good for your age like why even bother saying that why don't you just say you look great at any age every age that's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Kate, we were talking in the previous break about the expectations and whether or not some women want to deal with the stress of that. And Melania being, you know, caught off the record, what she thought was off the record complaining about some of the stuff which also i didn't jeff did, did you all come across this in your research that if melania didn't want to be first lady ivanka was going to step in like a yeah, sub, like first daughter story. lady i do remember that story like melania was going to stay in new york if i remember correctly yeah she wasn't going to go to the white house and that lasted for what a few months before they decided to move down there because like security was an issue and like they just decided to yeah. 
to make it easier. Maybe I'm misremembering that, but I think that was, but yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, that that is true. And then Michelle Obama and some of the other first ladies were like jealous of Melania for doing that because Melania, like the expectation was you move to the White House when your husband moves into the residence. And she just flipped the script and didn't do it. And I think that, (laughs) that these other women were like, what? I could have done the same thing. Like none of them really wanted to, to move in right away. So in a way, that was one of the more interesting things. And I think kind of great thing. Well, you know, she did a lot of terrible things, I think, as First Lady. But one of the good things was not doing what we all expected her to do all the time. And that brings me to the scrutiny, because let's let's be real. None of these women asked for this role. They just married a dude. And then one day the dude was like, hey, I want to be in charge of everything. I'm going to need you to bake cookies and pet the dog and take nice photos. And if you don't move a certain way within that within that construct, you get scrutiny from the press, social media. Now, 24 hour news cycle hasn't helped at all. How do the first ladies like how do they how do they handle that constant scrutiny? And number one, how you keep from going crazy, Kate? How do you keep from going crazy? Especially if you Melania, you know, Melania didn't think he was going to win. Yeah. I don't I'm going to be president. Lying. That is nice, Donald. Where's money? Give me money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do, how, do the, how do the first ladies, how do they deal with that scrutiny, you know, and try and keep their head on straight? You look at what happened to Betty Ford in the White House. She got addicted to painkillers and alcohol. I mean, I think a lot of them deal with it in a really unhealthy ways. I think it's really hard for them to um, to manage it. Some of them reach out to each other, like um, Michelle Obama and Laura Bush talked occasionally. One of the coolest parts of this First Lady's documentary on CNN is when they show um, David Axelrod, Obama's advisor, with um, Michelle Obama, and it's during the campaign, and she's like, I don't understand in 2008 why people think that I'm, you know, angry and not, like, approachable, and he just played this video of her speech with the sound off. And he's like, look at your facial expressions, look how you come across. And she was like, she was just stunned because that's not how she saw herself. That's not how people who knew her saw her. I called her in to show her what people were seeing. And I turned the sound down and just let her see herself. In a country, in a world She got it immediately. She was getting all of this, you know, remember when she said the phrase, and I'm going to butcher it, but it's about, you know, I'm proud of my country for the first time. And it wasn't quite that harshly said, but that was seized upon by the right and made into this huge, huge issue. Hope is making a comeback. It is making a comeback. And let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. And not just because Barack has done well, but because I think people are hungry for change. As the first black first lady, she just had tremendous pressure. And I think she leaned on her good friends like Valerie Jarrett in the White House. She, you know, kept a really tight group of women around her, people she had known forever from Chicago. Her mom lived with them, which helped a lot. Yes, that probably helped immensely. Yeah. For the Michelle Obama criticism, 
you know, one of the pieces in the discovery was like, we remembered that like she was criticized for wearing shorts, you know, just like yeah. regular shorts. There's photos of her getting off a plane. I think they were going to Hawaii maybe for like one of their winter vacations. Yeah. And like, there was like just outrage on conservative media about like, is it acceptable for Michelle Obama to be wearing shorts? And it's bad. So yeah. then to that point, Jeff, in your research, and I'm sure this is probably a lot more recent, let's just say from Clinton onward, did you see a double standard? Like just in watching the footage, as you're just going through hours and hours of footage, is there a double standard in how liberal versus conservative media, co- like let's just go with Fox News. If Michelle Obama can't wear shorts, Barack can't wear a tan suit, Melania had on a jacket that on the back, it said, fuck all of y'all. It's something, it's, let me ask Kate. Kate, is that what did, what did it say? I don't care. It didn't exactly say that. It was like, I really, I don't, I really don't care to you. Yeah. It was like a thousand dollar jacket too, right? Like it was like a, or like a really expensive jacket. It was a really, no, it was like a $40 jacket, which made it even weirder because she normally uh. wore $50,000 jackets. So it made no sense. <laughs> but is there is there a double standard, Jeff, in how the media chooses to scrutinize or uplift first ladies now? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone goes to their home side and starts advocating and tearing down the other side because that's what's expected. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the Michelle Obama, like, let's move campaign and like, you know, growing a garden in, in the White House. And like conservative media didn't like that. Like they attacked her for encouraging kids to eat vegetables. Um, so it's, you know, like carrots are a culture war thing now. There was a whole thing of like mockery of like calling Dr. Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, like a degree she had earned. And it was like a cycle of news of we're not going to call her doctor. She's not an actual doctor. If you're dying in the street, she's not going to operate on you right there. So therefore she's not a doctor. Oh, and, you know, the same thing, like anything Melania did would be defended. Wearing the jacket was fine. You know, no criticism. Kate, why is there such scrutiny around what a first lady like historically it's always been a thing like i remember my mother and to this day my mom talks about i want elbow length gloves like jackie onassis that's all like i don't know what it is but for her there is a regalness there is an elegance that she associates with the first lady and i too can be as elegant and grand as jackie onassis all the way down to, oh my God, Michelle Obama showed her arms. Could you believe she out there showing arms? She looked like a baby mama. What is with the fascination and the scrutiny of what first ladies choose to wear? You know, I think that, um, and it's interesting because the Jackie Kennedy, like the famous Chanel suits that she would wear, the pillbox hat, that was all made in America because she got criticized for wearing foreign designers. So she had knockoffs made in the U.S. of these fancy gowns. And then she was the first first lady to bring in her, you know, own basically in-house stylist. Um, I think that the thing with Michelle Obama's arms was really strange to me because there was such a fascination with them also and just how like, you know, I think she started a whole craze of women wanting to look like her too because she is so in shape, right? And we don't see first ladies, normally they're a bit dowdier like Barbara Bush, right? And they look more like your grandma. And so I think that, in a way, you know, there was also a lot of positives about the arms, at least to me. I, I thought her arms she were amazing. She created style staples, I would argue. She did. Like the sleeveless sheaths that she wore. But w- to your question about why it matters, I think it's because they can't really say anything. 
Like they can't come out. Laura Bush is pro-choice. She can't come out and say that her husband's pro-life. So they can't say anything substantive. So the only way they can be heard is through these choices of what they're wearing. Do you think Hillary's pantsuit plays into that same thing? Because I mean, she ran for office while she was still first lady. So it was almost like a statement in saying like, no, I'm here to handle it. Y'all respect suits as that's what people wear when you think they're here to handle business. So I'm going to wear a pantsuit. Yeah, I think so. I think absolutely. But I think there's a risk of weighing in, like reading into it too much. Like Melania wore white at the State of the Union one year and we were all thinking, oh, is she a suffragist now? Is this, you know, white is the color of the suffrage movement? And, you know, is she, is this a hidden message to her husband? When really we see that was just what Democrats, I think, were secretly hoping for with Melania. I think there was a lot of hope that she was this prisoner in the White House. And in reality, she was really 100% behind him on every issue tough as nails i mean she's not some victim and i think we see that now that she's doing all this stuff with selling nfts and you know kind of making money off of the position in a way we have never seen before because you know usually you donate your gowns to the smithsonian so the americans can see it and you know it's part of american history and not selling it to the highest bidder. Yeah, you um, set it at an auction for a quarter of a million dollars and then no one bids on it and then you take it off the market. A little depressing for them. <laughs> Jeff, what, is, what does this scrutiny say, though, about gender expectations? You know, like, you cannot show your arms, you cannot show too much leg, even though we're going to Hawaii where you will wear a bikini, wait until you are alone in private to put on the bikini. And... What happens, you know, when a first lady strays away from that ideal? It'll be interesting to see, like we were talking earlier about, like, you know, what happens when it's the first gentleman? Like, are those like are those same criticisms? Like if there's, you know, can a first gentleman show too much skin? Can you know, <laughs> are they going to be criticized for what clothes they wear? Uh, you know, like you just put it in that context. Like, I don't think that no. like, it's not going to happen. Exactly. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So it, it's it. it you know, that right there shows like the delicate, like, you know, you know, high wire, you know, walk that these these women have to do to like not offend on every little thing that like someone will take offense to. And like one person taking offense to, you know, showing arms or legs or wearing the wrong hat, it turns into a news cycle for days and weeks. And then it becomes a thing that people are questioning and get asked about. Kate, how much does feminism play into what's happened in the last 20 years as well and some of the choices that first ladies make that push against the societal expect the traditional societal expectations of a first lady? I mean, the point that Jeff was making is that a man in this position wouldn't be scrutinized because he wore at shorts all. at all. And the fact that a woman would shows that we haven't really made very much headway, you know. Um, and the fact that, you know, I don't, I, I mean, Michelle Obama probably, I don't think she could have continued her career as a lawyer just because there probably are conflicts of interest and all of that. But, you know, the fact that Dr. Biden is getting criticized for using the doctor title is just such a sign that, you know, we haven't made the strides in the White House that we have outside of the White House. I think there's been more progress. Um, I mean, listen, women still don't get paid the same as men for the same work. So I, I don't think we've made enough strides. But um, I think for some reason, this role is just it's ingrained in our conscience because it's the closest thing we have to the royal family. And so I feel like we Ooh. treat them kind of like queens, you know, instead of yeah. professional women. And I don't know how we 
get out of that. Yeah, because that's, that's, those are our two royal families, the, the White House and the Kardashians. <laughs> that's both, the sad statement. They, well, they both influence fashion. <laughs> totally true. <laughs> Before we go to the break, Jeff, how do you unpack all of this stuff and figure out, like, how do y'all zero in on what's funny? Because the balance at the show is always what do you need to know versus what would be entertaining? So how did you all navigate trying to put jokes in the middle of, oh, yeah, she's criticized, probably racially motivated. Oh, yeah, Melania might not move to Washington, D.C. How do you all navigate infusing humor into a historical segment? You know, sometimes we'll just give a bucket to the, some of the writers and be like, well, we could end on this story. We could end on that story. We'll give them three different stories and let them choose which one they think they have the best opportunity to make a joke off of. You know, it's not always necessarily finding the funniest footage, although that's always, you know, that's always a goal. And so, like, you know, we came across the footage of, like, Best Truman, you know, and she was, you know, she's christening these planes. Um, we use this, you know, story in the piece. She's christening these planes and she's given a champagne bottle that's not scarred. Like, it's not, like, cracked. So, like, yeah. you know, it, it doesn't break. The footage is, like, this 1940s <laughs> newsreel. So, it's like the, you know, at the new at the airfield, there's, you know, drama. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you see the footage and they just, you know, she's whacking it and whacking it and over and over <laughs> and over again. And, like, you just hear these thuds and you feel so bad for this woman because it's just, like, the, you hear the audience laughter and, like, the narrator's telling everything that's going on. And, like, it has to happen, like, half a dozen, a dozen times. I wish we had been able to, like, just play the entire thing in its entirety <laughs> because, like, it just builds and the drama builds and, like, you just hear it and you just feel so bad at a certain point. But, you know, don't have time I had never seen that before, actually. I thought that was really fun. Yeah, and you that, feel so bad for her. <laughs> you, you really do. And you're like, oh, man, like, I can't imagine, like, what that – if that had happened today, how, like – crazy the news would have been of like you know jill biden not able to break a champagne bottle what does that say about democrats yeah it's like Hillary kind of fainted walking out of that sprinter during the election like oh she out there passing out is that the president you want look at jill biden going up on the stage i loved that when she went up on the stage during the campaign and like went and like defended her husband against some protesters and like you see stuff like that and you see who they are you just see them as human beings and we don't get to see that enough i think for first ladies yeah they definitely have to mask who they really are to like be this persona that america will uh accept okay so then right there that, that's a great place to go to break because i want on the other side of the break as we wrap up here I want to find out from both of you what you think deems a first lady successful. Just 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 marinate on that. And we got to talk about first dude and what's the role of first dude because we have a chance now Jeff you and I to establish what the baseline rules will be for first dude, outfits and his his role in the White House. This is beyond the scenes. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Kate, I'll start with you because you have a New York Times bestseller about a lot of the first ladies that occupied this space. Jeff, I don't think you have a best, do you? I, I do a, not. No, no books okay. to my name. Okay. So then, Kate, I will start with you. <laughs> What makes a first lady successful? Because like, I feel like with the role of president, it's not really like there's the presidency and then there's the 20, 20 year afterglow when we look at the policies and how they actually matriculated or not. And I feel like a president is judged twice in a way. Or you can, you know, pull a bush and do a revisionist history and sit next to Michelle Obama and give a little pieces of candy and everybody forgets about yeah, that stuff. But for the role of first lady, you know, what deems a first lady successful? And what do you think of our current first lady, Dr. Jill Biden? Well, we've been talking about how the role has changed or not and how old fashioned it is and how inherently um, gendered it is. I think that each first lady who moves it forward just moves the ball forward. It's going to be it takes a long time to get there. But I think, um, you know, Michelle Obama, the first black first lady, just simply by being there, she did so much and and then by doing so much good. Michelle Obama had a lot of assets that other first ladies don't have. She's able to like be very relatable and warm. And I think some people like um, Melania are just not able to do that. Um, But I think that moved the ball forward. I think Hillary Clinton did by having that West Wing office that she regretted by becoming a senator and, you know, a a candidate for president. The first woman to win the nomination was huge. Um, But it's just moving the ball, you know, down the field. I don't know my sports analogies that well, but like, you know, each (laughs) each one is doing little like, you know, inch by inch. And I think Dr. Biden is the best recent example of that because just by having a job this is so like crazy that we think that's amazing, but it is because no one's done it before. She gets paid, she leaves the White House, she goes to her job. That's amazing that she's done that. And a lot of people don't like it, but um, people were worried that she wouldn't be able to balance everything. And I, I think that the main problem she has is, you know, during the pandemic is just having the ability to do the traditional things that we expect. Like, you know, she doesn't really have like one um, set platform, you know, but neither did Melania because Be Best just didn't really count to me because it just was way too broad and we don't know what it meant. And like Dr. Biden, I don't think, I don't think she has one thing that she's latched onto yet. And, uh, uh, and I, I know from, you know, having talked to her and people around her that because it's because of the pandemic. Jeff, we have a second gentleman in the White House right now. And, you know, number one, what do we think the role of, because I think it's an interesting opportunity if we're talking about gender dynamics and the role of a man within the house as it relates to supporting his woman. Because I believe that what's going on between Kamala Harris and her husband 
There are a lot of households like that in America where the woman is the mover and the shaker and she's the one kind of more in the forefront. What do you think the role of first gentleman will look like, you know, as we go forward? Because we are having more women in politics. This is not uncommon. So Kamala is not going to be the last of this iteration of the working the working woman politician being at the forefront and the man being there and being supportive. What do you think the first gentleman should do? Like, what 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 are the expectations? Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to watch because it's like you know, with the with the responsibilities that are you know handed off to to first ladies right now, like, will they end up having to like decorate the Christmas trees? Like, is that a responsibility? And if they are, are these going to be like traditional, where like they're on a ladder, you know, not you know, hammering <laughs> up the Christmas lights? Like, is that is it going to be like that traditional? Like the guy is going to be you know hanging on the you know mowing the lawn, uh, you know, the front lawn, <laughs> like. It'll be interesting to see, like, how... Yard work, the first gentleman, the first gentleman Doug Imhoff is now going to start up the official congressional hedge trimmer. You know, or they'll be doing the, the, the engine work on the on the beast, right? You know, the limos, like, they'll just be in the garage. Like, you know, if, if, there's some, if there are expectations to do, like, what the gender-defined roles are, then, like, you know, those are the things that, you know, we, you know, see in that role. So... I hope that like if when that happens that like you know when it goes starts going back and forth between having a first gentleman and a first lady when it goes back to being a first lady that like a lot of those roles those expectations are gone and like first ladies and women can do whatever they want and like there isn't that gender you know defined roles anymore. Yeah, I think another part of it as well Kate is you know when once we see a woman in office who has children and the role that the first gentleman plays in the expectations of parenting and fatherhood. I think that's probably something that'll probably be a bigger part of the conversation as we see more and more women elected into higher and higher positions in this country. I think so. And I think, you know, to Jeff's point about the, um, about Doug Emhoff, like the idea that, you know, we're actually not seeing him expected to play those male, like the, you know, we're not expecting him to be this tough, macho guy. Like he's out there, he's very warm and fuzzy and kind of, he's the consoler in the dynamic, right? Kamala Harris is getting business done and she's the powerful person in, the, in right now in their relationship. And he seems okay with that. You know, he's teaching law at Georgetown. He was a corporate lawyer, right, in, in California. And he's put that, you know, that's taken the back seat. And now he's out there, you know, visiting people, getting COVID shots and consoling. I, recently, he consoled a kid who was crying because they were afraid about the COVID shot. Like, he's doing the stuff that we expect women to do. And I think that that's what is so great about him is that he's just secure enough, whatever, in his manhood or whatever that you know let's move forward where they don't have to be diff tough he can he can be you know himself and i think um i think that's a great thing about that dynamic and i don't know why we're not talking more about it like to me that's amazing that we have a second gentleman and it doesn't get that much press attention and i'm not sure why what is the relationship between the first ladies you know because it's a very unique shared experience that like literally less than 50 people 
can honestly say that they've done. Like, is there is there a first ladies group chat? I know you said Laura and Michelle, Laura Bush and Michelle Obama, you know, they talked a little bit while Michelle was in office, but I look at that as more of a transitional, here's what to expect, girl. Mm -hmm. You need to make sure that dinner's on the table at 5.30 or else Donald Rumsfeld are coming in, cuss you. But <laughs> after the fact, are they still chill? Are they still friends? What's that life like now for them? I don't, I wish it's, it's funny. I, I kind of, um, I talked to somebody who worked for the Obamas about this, um, this book I did about the first ladies. And I was like, do they, do they email each other? Do they go out to lunch? And he's like, this would be a great novel. It is not reality. Like the reality is Michelle Obama and Laura Bush see each other at events. They're friendly, but they're not like, they're not hanging out, you know? Hey, girl. Um, <laughs> do spirit fingers it's too bad i mean i think jill biden and michelle obama developed like a real friendship you know especially after Bo biden passed away that was real the obamas and the bidens you know biden's grandkids are friends with the obama's daughters so you've got that connection um and so they still are friendly but um and, and i think they do lean on each other and to me that's what was really sad about the transition between the trumps and the um bidens was there wasn't like i know you said it's here's what to expect and it does seem very pro forma and kind of like humdrum but that's really important when the first lady gives a tour of the white house to the incoming first lady um because it's it's you know part of the peaceful transfer of power it's part of tradition it's happened since the trumans and the fact that that just didn't happen it's terrible and um there were so many awful things going on that i think that that kind of like fell under the radar but melania didn't invite jill biden to the white house melania had no relationship with any other first ladies and i think that made it even harder for her it's stuff like that that i think does matter even though it's the softer side of politics in the white house you should be able to reach back to the people who came before you and not have this like awful poisonous relationship with them which i think was what happened with Trump and Obama. Yeah, sounds a lot like high school. Have you talked to so-and-so? <laughs> we don't talk anymore. We just had calculus together that one time. But you stalked so, them on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also copy a lot of Michelle Obama's speeches and stuff. But Oh, a, that, yeah. That's a conversation that. for another, another episode. Mm -hmm. So before we go, I want to test both of you all. I want to give you a little quiz. I want to test your knowledge on the first ladies. This is a segment I'm calling First Ladies First. We're going to put some music right there and make it feel dramatic. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read a fact about a first lady and you all are going to tell me who was the first first lady to accomplish that task. Are you ready, Jeff? I don't know that my research went that deep, and I guess we'll find out. We're going to find out. Listen, only one of you is a New York Times bestseller with a book that is swimming in these waters, and one of you is a Daily Show producer who did some thorough research, but for about a week. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you can't show like, me like up. A, like a long time ago to it this point. <laughs> that piece aired, I think, a year ago. So, uh, All right, first question. Who was the first first lady to win a Grammy. Just holler it out if you know it either. We don't have buzzers. We don't have a budget for that. I might go with... Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt? 
Hillary Clinton. Ah, okay. Okay. I was going to go with Michelle Obama. Make it recent. Michelle Obama's a solid guess. Hillary Clinton, 1997, best spoken word album. It was for the audio book of her bestseller, It Takes a Village. Michelle Obama won one, I think, about two years ago, and that was for her memoir, Becoming. Next question. Who was the first first lady to seek advice from an astrologer during the presidency? Nancy Reagan. She went to this woman, Joanne Quigley, and she actually had a board where she had days that her husband should travel and should not travel. And she would label them green was a good day, yellow was iffy, red was bad. Because after the assassination attempt, she was so terrified that something would happen to him. She reached out to this astrologer. And then she would pillow talk him like, don't you leave town next Thursday, Ronald. You better stay away in America. <laughs> she just wouldn't let him go. It was like not going to happen. It was not on his schedule if it was a red day. She controlled the calendar. But Nancy, Nancy, <laughs> nuclear weapons are in there. Why did all of a sudden, why did I sound like Chris Farley? Van <laughs> what a terrible Ronald Reagan. I think that's as good a place as any to end. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much today for going beyond the scenes. Our guests, Jeff and Kate, thank you so much for going beyond the scenes with us. Thank you. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Explore more shows from The Daily Show Podcast universe by searching The Daily Show wherever you get your podcasts. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast. The wait is over. The Shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.